and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and joining me today is Anand Menon, the director of UK in a Changing Europe. Hello, Anand. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm good, thanks. How are you dealing with um, with lockdown? Do you have any long-term survival tips, apart from Malbec? Well, Malbec, obviously, and don't have young children. Mm. I think society can be neatly divided between those with young children and those without. Uh, our neighbours have got young children, and every Saturday we have a drink over the fence with them, and we chart their descent into insanity. <laughs> and it is incredibly satisfying, I have to say. Do you have any particular advice for people with young children? Do you advise them to expel them from the home or something? Well, expel them from the home or actually just break all the rules because it must be so miserable being trapped in a house with young kids. I mean, my son said to me the other day, he's 21, he said, if we'd been doing lockdown, it wouldn't have worked, would it? And I said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, it just wouldn't. Um, so we are in day something, fuck knows what, of the Dominic Cummings uh, scandal. What's your, what's your take? Do you think he's going to make it? I certainly don't think he's going to resign. Uh whether or not he's got rid of, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of polling coming out over the next few days. I think that's going to be important because the polling and Conservative MPs' reactions are going to interact. And if, for instance, we get a poll in the next 24 hours that say, hypothetically, it puts Labour ahead, that's going to have an impact on Tories and the number of phone calls to the whips is going to increase. And so they might that might create a dynamic. But as things stand, I think he's going to stay put. Uh, have we, I mean, putting aside all of the the actual sort of coming story and, and all that. I mean, have we learned anything about Boris Johnson's administration through the last sort of three, four days? Well, more than the last three or four days. I mean, just just compare the treatment of Sajid Javid and the treatment of Dominic Cummings. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's quite revealing, isn't it? Your chancellor is disposable, uh, almost without a second thought, you know, uh, whereas your chief advisor, even though he's causing trouble, even though he might be affecting the effect, you know, impacting on the effectiveness of your message, even though he's distracting from a load of other stuff that's showing on, going on, even though you're presumably wasting time in number 10 dealing with him rather than dealing with issues, you don't get rid of him. I mean, it's quite remarkable. Do you think any of that anger that we're seeing will ultimately taint the view of the government's general COVID response? It's very hard to say, isn't it? I mean, you saw the odd sort of placard saying, you know, Dominic can do it, I can, over the over the long weekend. Uh, what will be interesting, and I think this is, this is one of the key issues for Boris Johnson, is whether this administration comes to be seen like a bunch of politicians just like any other. Because I think one of the key things for Boris Johnson, and actually one of the reasons why he's been so insistent that he wouldn't extend transition, is, you know, his USP is he's the politician who does what he says. He's different to other politicians. So I think this kind of thing is particularly dangerous for this administration. And whether or not it sticks, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, you know, we did some stuff a while back on the... uh, you're probably too young to remember this because you say we're appallingly young, but you know, definitely, the, the, definitely the, the young. refinery blockades in 2000, when the day before the refinery blockade. Oh, I do know, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you were an attentive schoolboy. Well done. Uh, but the day, <laughs> the, the day before those refinery blockades, I think Labour Party were polling around 49 or 50%. And the day, about two days after the refinery blockades, was the only day in that parliament where the Tories had a lead over Labour. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, it's not the same, but it's, you know, it's a competence issue. It's you screwed this up sort of thing. But they got over it very fast. And and the, the, the a different sort of case is the ERM, where the Tories lost their reputation for competence and never got it back. And what we mm-hmm. don't know is whether this turns into a 2000 or a 1992, whether it sticks or not. During the 2015 general election, 
it was sort of astonishing to sort of most political journalists how firmly people had stuck to this view of Ed Miliband as the guy that stabbed his brother in the back. Because that had happened years before, right? I mean, there'd been all sorts of, you know, after that, been like, oh, he's done quite well at PMQs, always oh, done this quite good conference speech. No one thought he was fantastic, you know, like the, the savior of labor. But there was just a general sense that, you know, that that was something that happened in the early bit. And then you got to the election and the first thing anyone said was he stabbed his brother in the back. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. The, you sort of forget that if a cut through really cuts through it, no matter what happens afterwards, it's just it's the main thing. It's the big sort of emotional brushwork that's happened that people actually remember. I'm not wholly convinced by that. I mean, I haven't seen data that suggests that, you know, as a person untrustworthy because of what he did to his... I mean, actually, the interesting thing, the, the British election study have brought out their their book on the 2015 and 17 elections. And one of the really fascinating things in that is that the data they show on the 2015 general election shows that Labour were still paying the price for 2008 in 2015. Mm. Uh, so actually, that... Is, is a really striking example of sort of the electorate's memory for screwing up, that you screwed up in 2008. We're not just going to punish you in 2010, we're going to punish you again in 2015. And I think that that shows the fact that, you know, if you lose that reputation for competence in the eye of the public, uh, that would be a very big deal. And, of course, one of, the, one of the other striking features of the Boris Johnson government is the fact that it, it sort of ushered in this period when they when they first came in of, the almost complete dominance of politics over economics. So whether it was defining your economic policy or defining your Brexit policy, this was all about political messaging rather than aggregate economic impacts. And one of the things that COVID makes me wonder is whether in the context of rising unemployment and a possible, well, a certain recession, but we don't know how long it's going to go on for, uh, that predominance of politics over economics will work anymore, or whether people will actually turn around and say, fix the sodding economy, for God's sake. Uh, there's this thing, Brexit, which nobody talks about anymore. Um, I presume you're still following it. Do you, want, do you want to give us an update on what the fuck is going on? I mean, it was, it was pretty clear last time that both sides were fundamentally quite irritated with each other. I suspect it's, it certainly suits the British government to keep this air of being sort of at odds with the European Union going. I don't think it suits the British government, incidentally, to walk from the talks in June. I think it suits them politically if they're going to walk to walk in November when it's close to the time that we actually leave transition. So that sense of outrage can carry us through the first, you know, queues at Dover. But, uh, you know, there was absolutely, well, no, not absolutely no sign of progress. There were teeny weeny little signs of progress around the Irish protocol, but on the substance of the negotiations, absolutely nothing seemed to shift. What is this? I mean, when we talk about the summer deadline for um, extending transition, there's sort of two schools of thought, really, isn't there? Or at least that I've seen from guys online, which is mostly, you know, sure, it's the deadline, but there is a there's a pretty good chance they'll be able to work out some kind of legal whatever, you know, way after the summer if they re- if both sides really do want to extend. And there's the other side that says, actually, you know what, really, if you don't hit that deadline, then that really is game over and you really can't. What, what's your view on that? My view is it might be possible. I don't know. I mean, the two of the lawyers I respect, Catherine Barnard and Jean-Claude Pyrrhus, are both very, very sceptical about it. So I have no choice but to be very sceptical about it. Very sceptical that you can't extend very once you get that you can, the deadline. You know, are of the view that you can only extend transition by extending transition. Uh, 
And any attempt to cobble together some kind of second best legal alternative post the end of June is going to be politically fraught, very time consuming, very difficult and potentially not legally possible. But you suspect there might be more of a bit more wriggle room. No, I'm, I'm with them on that. I, I mean, you know, this is about the law. So I listen to Catherine. It's, it's perfectly simple rule of thumb. That, that makes the politics much harder, doesn't it? Because you can, you know, the, the, the politics and the impact, the, the relationship between those two things in Brexit is so crucial. And if you, once you disentangle the political decision from having to face any impact of it, it becomes much more likely that you take the standard one, which is, you know, up yours to laws. So it looks, I mean, that you'd be pretty much, you know, you'd have to be a brave betting man to bet on any kind of extension at this stage. No, I mean, I take your point. I mean, I agree absolutely. Politics would be a lot easier if there were no laws. Uh, you know, it would be a hell of a lot <laughs> that, of... that was not my point. Well, yeah, it's like what you were saying. I mean, let's, sure, just, let's just leave it there for the moment and see if he gets cut. Eh? I, do not, I do not see any circumstances in which the government asks for an extension before the end of June. I can see circumstances in which by the time we get to the autumn, people are saying, look, we need to find some clever device. All I'm saying is I've not yet heard of anything that is legal that they could do that would allow them to do it, that would preserve transition as it is now, which is to say, essentially, our economic relationship with the European Union remains unchanged. Uh, Because if we end up doing EU mitigations, they'll mitigate the bits they want to mitigate and screw us on the bits where they can screw us. so it will be very, very different from this situation. And, you know, I think, well, there are two things that are interesting about transition, aren't there? Firstly, that we, you know, it's a very rare thing to hear in this country, but Article 50 was quite a good thing for us because it gave us the flexibility to do things like extend transition that usually are incredibly uh, difficult to do. And I can't remember the second thing, so let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad to see that lockdown hasn't in any way sort of blunted your mental No, no, no not at all. I think one point is usually <laughs> fine in 99% of cases. If you were to come up with a compromise position on level playing fields or fish, you're free to take any of these two monstrous issues as you like, what do you think it would look like? Well, on fish, what I'd say is we have the right to decide on an annual basis on what the agreements are for quotas, and I would have a vote in Parliament. And if I were the Prime Minister, I would whip my MPs to vote in favour of extending the status quo, and then everyone should be happy. That is to say, the British Sovereign Parliament has decided to give these people rights. In return for those rights, not only can they fish in our waters, but Scottish seafood fishermen can sell to the European market. And hey, everyone's quite happy, and we have retained sovereignty. Uh, On... LPF. I mean, LPF, it strikes me the big issue on, on level playing field is state aid. Uh, because I think on the rest of level playing field, you could do a non-regression kind of thing that would work. And I don't think the government have closed the door on that. Michael Gove certainly didn't the other day. But by non-regression, what I mean is that you have an agreement whereby we won't be bound by EU law. We won't be covered by the European Union's court, which we hate. But what we'll say instead is that, look, we will not, our standards will be equivalent to yours. We'll get to them in our own way, using our own laws, not being bound by you. And basically, you can use trade remedies, i.e. you can say, okay, we're going to impose tariffs in that area if you think we have breached the thing. And you, you can sit down at a table and discuss it with us. But that is a far more flexible way of doing it than doing it under the European Court of Justice. And on state aids, where the European Union has basically said, you will obey our law and essentially our court will decide whether you are or not, which is a little bit OTT, it has to be said, 
you can use trade remedies again, which they do in a lot of trade deals. That is to say, okay, look, we will build in conditions into the trade deal that say, if you are in breach of uh, state aids, then we will take appropriate remedies against you. So I think there are ways around this. Uh, Whether or not either side is willing to make that sort of concession, I just do not know. It strikes me that actually it is harder now for the European Union to make concessions on level playing field because of Macron losing his majority in the French Parliament. And, of course, he lost his majority because those MPs left to join a more sort of progressive grouping. And it strikes me that given that, if he turned around now and said, we're going to give the Brits a bit more wheel room when it comes to undercutting us on standards, that probably isn't the best politics for him at home. UK in a changing Europe. It's quite an odd sort of organisation, isn't it? Because you don't really see much not successfully anyway, of um, organisations or individuals sort of straddling those two lines of journalism and academia. Was that something that you kind of set out to do when you were doing it? Or is it you just sort of fell into it because that's the bit that seemed to be working? I wanted, I mean, partly because we were in the context when we were set up of of a referendum, I wanted us to be a bit more popular, if not populist, and do stuff, you know, in the media a lot on the sort of, not the sort of highbrow programs, but things like BBC Breakfast Five Live and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I was very keen from the start that we did that sort of thing. But we are we are very, very odd. I mean, we're a network of academics that, you know, we call ourselves a think tank just because we can't think of what else to call us. But we're very different to other think tanks in the sense that we draw on the, the expertise of academics from around the country. So we don't just have a staff of five or six sitting in Westminster. We, we, you know, we draw on people working in universities across the country and beyond. I mean, it feels, you know, I mean, on a sort of basic civics level, like a, a thing that should be happening, which is that there is, there is a ground where academia does meet journalism in some way, even if it if, if it's connecting academics to journalists, which, you know, I mean, some universities have pretty good press offices for doing that. Most of them really don't. Um, and just having a way of, of taking that expertise and injecting it into the public debate, even though it goes against sort of, you know, the, the typical sort of judgment of academia on the journalism side and often the snootiness of academics towards journalism. It does feel like there's an important kind of, I don't want to get on the soap, but like a democratic requirement for that kind of joining to take place. Yeah, I'm not sure I put it in quite those. I mean, but I think historically we've been very, very bad on both sides of the divide. And as you quite rightly say, that's not just the fault of journalists. It's also the fault of academics who, you know, and, and still, you know, I've got colleagues involved in our work who get kind of laughed at by others in their departments for being sort of media tarts or sellouts or undermining academia by being popular. Sellouts? Is that what they call them? Well, that kind of rubbish, you know. They probably don't say sellouts. They probably use the sort of fifth century Latin word. (laughs) Uh, Whatever it may be. Uh, But... You know, there's a degree of hostility in universities to what we do, but I just think it's an absolute no-brainer. I think if you're a social scientist, you have a certain duty to communicate what the research says to people who are going to be affected by it. And in the case of Brexit, everyone's going to be affected by it. There was a popular vote, so, you know, and there's a body of research that people will be better off knowing about than not. And I think that applies across the board, actually. It applies to all sorts of things. Uh, 
I mean, for me, UK and a changing Europe is a success if if the journalists and politicians and civil servants who have dealt with us throughout the Brexit process continue to do so. And even at a minimum, we continue to act. We, we act as a kind of dating service where the journalist rings up and says, look, mm-hmm. I'm doing something on le- levelling up in, in Oldham. Do you know anyone who's done any work on it? And you can say, actually, I know a bloke who wrote a PhD about this 10 years ago and has written on nothing but since. Here's his number. I think that is a useful service. Yeah, it's tremendously, it's tremendously useful. Um, the other thing then is, is the reports. Um, and the reports are, I mean, I don't want to say nice things to you to your face or behind your back or in any context whatsoever, frankly. But there is, I have to say, a really clear, crisp, easily readable nature to the reports that your organization puts out that most think tanks, most political parties, you know, most journalists, you've sat there reading a lot of reports and they're usually an absolute pain in the ass. What you're kind of looking for is 14 pages of well-written stuff that gets you knowledgeable, but does it fairly painlessly. Was that something, again, that you were trying to do or did you just end up having someone very sort of talented in your in the office? No, it was absolutely something we'd always wanted to do from the start was, you know, we'd always said that, you know, ideally, everything on our website can be led by an intelligent 16 or 17-year-old. That You know, uh-huh. the stuff has to be accessible or what's the point? Now, some of the processes we go through to arrive at that end product are, frankly, Monty Python-esque. Uh, you know, the sketch about the academics trying to write clearly. Uh, they sh- you know, we could, do, we could virtually do one on a monthly basis because we have some, some really odd fights with people about writing style, sentence length, all that sort of stuff. And on occasion, we have to make compromises. We did a big report a few, a couple of years ago, about 18 months ago, on what trading on WTO terms means. And the compromise we came to was we released one report that was 60 pages long and quite hard to read. And we released another that was 10 pages long and a lot easier to read. And that was a compromise with essentially the lawyers saying, okay, we have a popular version and we have the one that is, you know, in your view, absolutely legally uh, accurate. So there are a lot of trade-offs, a lot of conversations go on about to what extent you can edit things. I mean, editing John Curtis is an interesting experience because he tends to get back to you and put everything back again. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it is, yeah, it is something, it is something we have deliberately tried to do from the start. Is it odd for you as well? I mean, by this stage, you know, I mean, what sort of two, three years ago, you know, you're an academic and now, of course, you remain an academic, but you're also on question time, you know, you're doing a lot of radio. Does it sometimes feel like you're sort of, you're drifting into the realms of journalism more than you'd originally anticipated. I mean, to all intents and purposes, I've ceased to be an academic. I don't teach anymore. I've not written anything sort of scholarly, as we have to call it, uh, for, a, for, a, for a good long time. So I'm not sure I've drifted into the world of, of journalism. I've drifted into a weird no man's land where I have absolutely no idea what I can or should do next. And it occasionally concerns me. Uh, and I mean, I don't think I can or should go back into academia when this is over. Uh, partly because I've enjoyed this so much and partly because I've forgotten everything I ever knew about the political science literature <laughs> on the European Union. That would be an awful lot of reading to catch up on. So, yeah, it has changed. And this is the trade-off you make. And this is, I mean, there are there are sort of structural trade-offs in academia. In academia, you get promoted at the good universities for writing stuff for the top journals and the top journals generally in political science publish stuff largely in Greek. All right. It is formula. It is equations. It is statistics. It's quite technical stuff. It absolutely is not accessible to the non-specialist reader. Okay, Uh, but getting your articles in those journals is what gets you promotions, which is what gets you pay rises. 
Uh, if you spend time doing other stuff, you're either so good that you've written loads of journal articles in those journals and have time to do stuff on the side, or you are sacrificing some of your ambitions in terms of promotion and pay rises to do something a bit different. But there are genuine structural constraints inside universities against doing the sorts of things that we do. Great. So, Anand, thank you very much indeed. I know that you've run out of wine, so I'm going to stop talking to you now so that you can move yourself back to the kitchen. I take it you're drinking Malbec? Always. Well, not always. Good. I mean, when I drink, I drink Malbec, yeah. Don't get the wrong impression. Good, you're right, yeah. Oh, so you haven't, you haven't resorted to having it for breakfast yet? Okay. No, but there'll be moments. Um, okay, thank you very much for listening. Uh, that was Anna Menon. My name is Ian Dunt. Um, that was your Bunker Daily. There's a Bunker Daily Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the main show on Wednesdays. And don't forget to subscribe on your favourite app. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. It was produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.